Thanks for joining me for the second week of Romans 8. And if you didn't actually catch the first week, then let me bring you up to speed for a second here. It's my opinion that Romans 8 might be Paul's greatest systematic theology, but I said this last week, it's sort of asystemic. The ordering of events, the ordering of parts of his theology, his understanding of the New Covenant, it's kind of all over the place throughout the chapter. So for a total of six weeks, we're going to look at it in order. So last week, we looked at what I call the baseline, kind of the non-negotiable starting position that Jesus has given us. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at the incarnation. Then it's the cross. Then the fourth week will be the Holy Spirit. Then union, you know, I love that word. And then finally, the call of God, like how do we actually live this out? So again, last week was the baseline. And just to catch you up again, the baseline of our entire life in Jesus is this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the ending of that chapter, the kind of bookend of the opening verse is the other piece, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So just to make sure you understand, the baseline is no condemnation. And the reality is the one who's made it so, you cannot be separated from him. That's where we live from. Well, this week, we're going to be looking at the condition of mankind uh, from the fall right up to the incarnation. We're going to be talking about the reason for the incarnation and so gloriously, the meaning of the incarnation. So that's where we're going to be going. And I don't know, I I just want to pray because I, I want to draw our hearts in as we dive in. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, the one who did take on flesh, the one who had been on that throne you're on right now. You had been there from before time, and yet you stepped down, you you, you took your place in our flesh. You wanted to know us, and you wanted us to know you. So I pray that we will be particularly attentive to what your Holy Spirit teaches us about your incarnation, and that we would all just be delighted that you came for us in the first place. So please grab our hearts today, Jesus. In your name, amen. Well, friends, I want you to imagine a man whose whole entire life is about to change. He's in the middle of getting out of bed, getting ready for what he thinks the day is going to hold. He stands up to his feet. He splashes some water in his face. He gets dressed. He goes out and has a little light breakfast. And now he's heading out the door to work. This man, as always, on on every first day of the week, heads to work with an inward combination of great pride and yet also great self-loathing. It's a weird mixture of the feelings of really both life and death. He's perfectly aware that what he does for work is neither important nor beneficial, nor in any way a good use of his mind, heart, or life. This man collects taxes for the Caesar. He is the go-between for a rapacious empire that cares nothing for his people and for his people who want nothing more than to be free of Rome. His life is that point of convergence. The money from his people passes through him onto Rome. And every day is always the same. He takes this walk to work, avoiding the eyes of everyone he grew up with, all the other people of his town, so that he can just 
go and set up shop once again at his tax collector's booth. Today, as always, he arrives and takes his seat there. He gets down to the work of collecting that day's taxes. Now, I mentioned before that there's both self-loathing inside him, but also pride. You see, the pride comes as the other side of the coin, pun intended, to that self-loathing. Because for every shekel that finds its way to Rome, well, there's another half shekel he charges and pockets for the help and let's call it convenience he's offering to his townspeople. So his is the finest home in town, the finest food and drink. His is the finest robe and sandals, all of these points of pride, and all of it's paid for hatefully by his neighbors. Oh, and one more thing too. Believe it or not, this man has tried his best, apart, of course, from his subtle stealing, to follow the law handed down by Moses to his people. I mean, he does his absolute earthly best to follow the Ten Commandments, except again for that one. And actually, he has been one of the biggest donors to the local synagogue. And yet, try as he might, no matter what he gives or changes or sacrifices according to the way of Moses, there is no expiating away this inner destruction of his soul and his nature. So do you have a picture of this man in your mind? I mean, can you kind of see him? And by the way, his name is Matthew. Some people call him Levi. Well, now, imagine him sitting there in the early afternoon light, uh, tallying up the morning's takings, thinking about, let's say, his later supper, maybe a walk into the hills after he's done for the day. And imagine, suddenly, the center of town stops. Everyone's holding their breath, ceasing to do what they're doing. They are all watching the walk of the man, that man, Jesus, who's walking toward the tax collector's table. Matthew glances up from what he's writing. His brow furrows. He is sitting there studying the man who likewise studies him. And now the stranger leans with both hands on the desk and then with both love and power in his eyes simply says, follow me. A lightning bolt runs through Matthew. In that moment, the past and the future consider each other. Matthew knows the pattern of his days, like the way this is destined to continue on and on. And in the eyes of this man, he is seeing something else. He sees a choice, sonship, brotherhood, righteousness, and splendor. He just doesn't know yet that the choice of a son to be a righteous, splendid brother is the foredecided choice of God of him, of Matthew. Matthew, now the former tax collector, the one now already rising to his feet to follow. The one who's going to finish this day by banqueting with Jesus, with all the other tax collectors and disreputable folk, before tomorrow, leaving it all behind. The one who will, uh, 30 years after this day, be killed 
for the sake of the good news of Jesus, 2,500 miles away in Ethiopia. Friends, the one who right now is still at the banqueting table forever with Jesus, enjoying the eternal splendor of life as one of God's own sons. Well, now, from Romans 8, I want you to hear the true story of Matthew, and really of every single man, woman, and child who has ever lived. And this is from verses 10, 5 through 8, the beginning of 3, and 29 and 30. So listen. Paul writes, I said that our nature is dead in the presence of Christ, and so it is because of its sin. The carnal attitude sees no further than natural things, but the spiritual attitude reaches out after the things of the Spirit. The former attitude means, bluntly, death. The latter means life and inward peace. And this is only to be expected, for the carnal attitude is inevitably opposed to the purpose of God, and neither can nor will follow his laws for living. Men who hold this attitude cannot possibly please God. The law never succeeded in producing righteousness. The failure was always the weakness of human nature. And I just want to interject, friends. Pay attention to this kind of great pivot of pivots. I continue in verse 3. But God has met this by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to live in that human nature which causes the trouble. God, in his foreknowledge, chose them to bear the family likeness of his son, that he might be the eldest of a family of many brothers. He chose them long ago. When the time came, he called them, he made them righteous in his sight, and then lifted them to the splendor of life as God's own sons. All right, let's start back at the beginning there. I said that our nature is dead in the presence of Christ, and so it is because of its sin. So last week, verses 1 and 38 and 39, I described those as the new baseline of our life in Jesus. Everything from here on out is actually meant to rise from those. Well, this verse, the one I just read to you, verse 10, I would call it the old top line. From the moment of the fall, from the moment when rebellion away from God and toward the self became the natural nature of mankind, human life has been a death in life. Our natural instincts have been away from God, who is life, and toward the self, which is now directed toward death. And all of this is the very nature of sin. Sin, uh, fallenness, brokenness is the top line of humanity. Nothing can rise higher in us of ourselves because of sin. And what's the difference between this sinful nature and the spiritual nature for which we were first intended? I'll keep reading. The carnal attitude sees no further than natural things. Sin and the self will always have a limited vision. And not just limited to some mind-body dualism. No, the natural things referenced can be, yes, the self, the body, and really all material things. The things of the world, of the flesh. This is as far as our sinful nature could ever, would ever see. That's its limited kind of field of vision. 
but the spiritual attitude reaches out after the things of the spirit. And notice it doesn't say um, spiritual things or some sort of esoteric spiritualism. No, the spiritual attitude reaches out after the things of the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the Holy Ghost. Think about it this way. There is one attitude that only takes account of the natural order of things. Well, there's a whole other one that is entrained to the actual living spirit of God. The former attitude means bluntly death. There's death again. The latter means life and inward peace. And this is only to be expected for the carnal attitude is inevitably opposed to the purpose of God and neither can nor will follow his laws for living. Men who hold this attitude cannot possibly please God. So the sinful nature cannot please God because it cannot naturally follow his way of living, which is always pointed, by the way, toward his purpose, and thus, lacking peace and life, it just continues to plod on toward death. How does that sound to you as a life trajectory? But if you flip all of that on its head, like go in the spiritual direction we're about to be going, then what do you have? the spiritual nature that will always please God because it naturally follows his way. It points to his purpose with peace and life always marching into greater life. Now that sounds quite a bit more interesting, doesn't it? But there was one more direction humanity went, wasn't there? And this is verse 3a. The law never succeeded in producing righteousness. And the law, by the way, is sort of the uh, structured religious approach to God. The law never succeeded in producing righteousness. The failure was always the weakness of human nature. So, friends, like being sinful, being fleshly, instinctual, aimed at death, humankind tried its best to produce righteousness by adherence to the law. By taking an approach to God that was structured and religious, humankind hoped to rise above its fleshly, humanly self. The problem? Well, the weakness of that very nature. It was like, imagine trying to pick yourself up off the ground using only your hands, like you were grabbing the laces of your shoes, uh, your bootstraps. Imagine trying to pick yourself up off the ground that way. It was, by definition impossible. Until these, again, glorious words. Listen. But God has met this by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, to live in that human nature, which causes the trouble. You see, friends, the incarnation is the final answer of God to humanity's fallenness because seeing us impossibly stuck trying to pick ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps, he seemingly impossibly entered personally, meaning in person, into the equation. He took on the nature that until then had been the problem. He came to rewrite it, to perfect it, to show us precisely what he'd meant by his original spiritual Garden of Eden version of humanity. He came as the new first man. And then, so wonderfully, this. God 
in his foreknowledge, that's his knowledge before creation's creation, chose them, meaning chose us too, to bear the family likeness of his son. Do you understand? You and I have been chosen so that over the course of our life, we begin to look like Jesus. That he might be the eldest of a family of many brothers. And you see, you and I, friends, we are not Christians. We are not the mercenary army of a Christian worldview. We are not here doing church for church's sake. Friends, we are taking our place in a family. We are learning to find our seat at the table. Because, listen to the end. He chose them long ago. When the time came, he called them. He made them righteous in his sight and then lifted them to the splendor of life as his own sons. Friends, Matthew's story with Jesus is really all of our stories You and I are meant to personally experience what he experienced, um, dead in sin, seeing no further than natural things, opposed to the purpose of God, missing God's way of living, even while trying humanly to follow God's law. Well, God himself suddenly stepped into the frame, right into the flesh. And choosing us, remaking us from the inside with an insider's knowledge of our insides, he invited us into the family. I mean, right to the table. He came to make us righteous. He called us into a heavenly brotherhood. And his final work is going to be that day when he lifts us into the eternal family circle. He came that you might come home. He called your name so that he could give you a new one. Do you know what it is? Son. Daughter. Friends, that is what the incarnation was all about. Thanks so much for listening.